Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to remind everyone that our CMBH 12-week immersion program is open for fall application to anyone in Ontario. This is our popular medically integrated diet, exercise, and lifestyle program for people who struggle with their weight and metabolic health. Over the 12 weeks, you will get a physician's consultation and follow-up with a cardiometabolic health specialist. You'll get Dr. Appleton's empowered health report. You'll get a full review of your medical history, family history, and any medications you are currently taking, a system-by-system health assessment, including cardiovascular panel, lipids, kidneys, glucose metabolism, immune function, blood counts, and more. You'll get comprehensive lab tests, advanced diagnostics, and interpretation, prescriptions, if required, chronic disease risk assessment and management plan and medical management of any diagnosed conditions. Then you will also receive your very own health coach who will carry out Dr. Appleton's recommended plan. You will get diet, exercise and lifestyle coaching that can be done anywhere. You'll get support and accountability to keep you on track it is the full comprehensive package for people who want to take control of their health and change their lives the best part almost 70 percent of this program is covered by ohip for ontario residents and you do not need a physician's referral we will do the referral for you and it is all included if you're serious about taking care of your health please fill out the application form in the episode notes to see if you qualify or go to andrewappletonmd.ca that's all together one word andrewappletonmd.ca slash cmbh we hope to see you there Okay. Here we Official. go. <laughs> yeah. You, it's uh, been a long time. Yeah. Yeah. You've been leading all of these recently. I've been, okay. yeah. Today won't be any different. Right. Exactly. I, yeah. I hope you do some video clips of for your YouTube channel so people can see your sweater. Isn't it nice? It looks like what a, like an eccentric 70s party goer would wear. A party goer. I feel like you're missing a beret. Well, you know me. <laughs> you're missing a beret and a long cigarette holder. Yeah, for sure. I mean, as, as long as the party doesn't go beyond 9 p.m., then I'll be there for yeah. sure. Speaking of which, uh, <laughs> Laura had her, her staff Christmas party last night. Oh, okay. So I didn't get to sleep till like 11.30. And I was up oh, at 11.30 this morning. And yeah, yesterday I'm like, the last yeah. thing I want to do is be bombed, obviously, bombed going to bed. Better. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. You <laughs> yeah, know me. Lamp, lampshade on your head at the party. And yeah. Yeah. Did you sit on Santa's of, lap? <laughs> there's a couple of those who, you know, they're they're looking forward to that night. Absolutely. I wasn't one of them. <laughs> uh okay. Yeah. So today I thought uh we would talk about women's health. And we can call this uh two men. Explain menopause. <laughs> so stuff, someone will have something to say about it, I'm sure. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for sure. When, you know, roughly half of my practice is uh, is women. Uh, so when it comes to cardiometabolic health problems, and as as you may know, Tommy, women are not men. Um, yeah. So there are some actual specific things that happen, uh, particularly as women age, 
that uh, have a direct effect on overall health and especially cardiometabolic health. So um, the things I wanted to address, obviously menopause, uh, but then also some cancer screening and osteoporosis, I think are really important things that uh, often can be overlooked. Well, the, the changes are actually start quite early, right? When you think about like young, young mm-hmm. female athletes, the female athlete triad, uh, when young girls start to develop and everything from female specific injuries to um, disordered eating to uh, just the psychological challenges, uh, both with like body image, the inside and outside of sport, like the differences between men and women essentially starts with the differences between boys and girls. And it's just like the, the, the different, the kinds of differences and, and what those differences mean change over time typically, but uh, it's not just in, in the aging population. It's basically all throughout life. Those, those differences when it comes to like fitness, body image, nutrition, um, athleticism, like those differences are, are, are pretty obvious and, and significant from a, from a fairly early age. Yeah, I, I fully agree. Um, I think there, there's definitely some, some differences as we get into the sort of middle decades, uh, in particular, like cardiovascular risk. If you compare the risk for men and women, men start to have, you know, or they start to express cardiovascular disease in terms of actual symptomatic atherosclerosis, angina, heart attack, strokes, about 10 years before women do. And, you know, the theory is that this must be an estrogen effect. So right. the fact that, you know, or women, or women have so much higher estrogen levels that this is somehow protective from a cardiovascular standpoint. Um, but then after menopause, they basically catch up with, uh, with the level of risk for men. And then on top of that, it's a little bit more challenging because women often present different uh, with different symptoms of, um, of coronary disease, especially than men do. And uh, so they may be actually underrepresented in, in the uh, number of patients who actually get diagnosed with, with true coronary disease. So, you know, the, the estrogen effect being so important uh, was, you know, the reason why the large study called the women's health initiative was done initially thinking that giving women hormone replacement therapy might actually be protective from a cardiovascular standpoint uh, when given post-menopause. So obviously, so just, I guess, backing up. So menopause uh, is, you know, technically defined as 12 months of no periods, but there can be a long uh, a time before that, even up to, you know, five plus years where, uh, where the menstrual cycle starts to become irregular, it can be lighter, it can be heavier, the timing and uh, the duration can be all over the place. And then of course, all the perimenopausal symptoms that come up as well. Um, So that can go on for quite some time. But once you've not had a period for 12 months, then technically you've gone through menopause and the average age that that happens is about 51. Uh, Though uh, many women go through menopause a lot earlier and, uh, and also later. So if you're kind of in that 45 to 50 window and you're having symptoms that you think might be perimenopausal, then that's, you know, absolutely, um, probably the case. Um, if you're younger than 45, 
it certainly can still be a perimenopausal changes, but you need some more investigations if you're starting to have symptoms at that point. So that would be with the irregularity of your cycle. Uh, but uh, also the two major uh, categories of perimenopausal symptoms would be vasomotor symptoms, which is like hot flushes and night sweats. And then the genitourinary symptoms, which would be like vaginal dryness, pain during intercourse, more frequent UTIs, and uh, and so on. So if you if women are starting to experience those things, then they should you know bring that to the attention of their primary care provider for sure, and start to have a conversation about do we need to do any investigations, especially if you're under forty five when this is happening. Uh, and then, you know, how do I know when we're going through the, the menopausal transition and are there treatment options available for these things if it's starting to become uh, disruptive to quality of life? I'm sure you have an idea of, of where you want to take this, but where is the general medical consensus right now on <laughs> hormone-based interventions? Yeah. Because it's, a, it, it's the first thing you think of. Uh, when it comes to these sorts of issues that women have, or yeah. at least it's, it seems like the most obvious intervention, but uh, it's still quite controversial. Um, and it, yeah. outside of very specific uh, cutting edge medicine, I would think that the average physician would probably shy away from any sort of hormone replacement therapy out of concerns of, of results that have, that have come up out of these types of mass studies that were done initially that uh, many prominent and, and, and well-studied physicians and researchers now would say uh, are, are, are debunked uh, and seems to be the opposite seems to be true in many cases, as far as hormone replacement therapy actually being net beneficial. That's right. Uh, so where outside of like people who have specific expertise in this area and are staying on top of it in your eye, what is the general, uh, like the day-to-day family physician, family practice, like if a woman goes to her, her family physician and says, hey, they know that, that they're going through menopause, uh, they're not, they're feeling very unwell, the symptoms are significant, and they want to do something about it, and they say, hey, what about hormone replacement therapy? What do you think the average physician's attitude is? I think it's really variable. Um, the last I'm going to say two years, there's been kind of a renaissance uh, of, around hormone replacement therapy in the positive sense. Uh, so it's sort of made the circuit on, you know, really famous podcasts like ours. Um, and there, there's actually been a number of reviews in, uh, in major medical journals, both um, like JAMA, uh, the CMAJ in, in Canada. So broad readership that have I think done a good job of, of laying out the evidence and sort of debunking the, the concern. So what is the concern? So the WHI or the women's health health initiative study that I mentioned before, uh, used hormone replacement therapy with the thought that this might reduce cardiovascular risk. And in fact, what they found was that there was an increased risk of thrombosis or blood clots, strokes, and, uh, invasive breast cancer. And so the study was basically halted, alarm bells went up, and like everybody stopped prescribing hormone replacement therapy. So this would have been in the 90s. And then a whole generation of physicians who went through training or were in practice at that time had that deeply implanted in their brains and that still exists to this day. Um, but 
going back and looking at that evidence and looking at who the patients actually were that were in that study and the actual treatment that was used specifically, we have a much better idea. Plus, there have been additional studies since then, uh, which are not nearly as, as alarming. The major problem with that study was that the average age of the women in it was 65 and so the conventional wisdom now is you actually wouldn't start somebody on hormone replacement therapy uh, under age or ab above age 60, typically. So we want somebody around the time of menopause or perimenopause. So in, around that 50 mark, or maybe as low as 45 or even younger, and you're going to continue that therapy through the, what you think would be sort of the natural phase of, of menopause. And then typically would look at discontinuing therapy by the time somebody's 60. So we're, we're not even treating the same age group of women that were initially studied. And then the type of treatment that was most closely linked with breast cancer was actually uh, a specific type of progesterone. So it was medroxy progesterone that they used in those studies. And now we use a different formulation called micronized progesterone, which doesn't seem to have that associated risk with it. And so the estrogen itself actually wasn't um, uh, an increased risk driver of, of breast cancer specifically. And there's now actually evidence to suggest that by treating women with estrogen earlier, it is actually preventative for cardiovascular disease outcomes. Um, yes, there is still probably a small increased risk of, uh, of blood clots and stroke that seems to be consistent, very, very small risks. And so when we think about putting a woman on hormone replacement, we look at what, what is your overall level of cardiac risk? Do you have any contraindications to treatment, like a history of blood clots or an inherited condition that puts you at an increased risk of blood clots? If you have a personal history of, uh, cardiovascular disease, or breast cancer, then yeah, you're not getting hormone replacement therapy. So as long as we select people um, in the right way, in the safest way, and we do proper counseling, then it's totally a viable treatment option. Uh, I have several women in my practice currently on hormone replacement therapy, and it is a life-changing treatment uh, because the symptoms can be really, really debilitating, specifically the night sweats, which um, disrupt your sleep quality and you, you know, people kind of become a zombie and it's closely linked with depression and all sorts of other things that uh, we, we don't want to have to go through. Yeah. That's something that I've thought about quite a bit in the aging population as well as even if you assume that the, that the risks initially uh, the risk that initially came up in the uh, in the flawed studies, even if there was a consistent increased risk in a variety of, of potential disease outcomes, you also have to ask, but what are you, but what are you getting from the intervention and what are you losing from not taking it on? Because people have this, uh, people have this great concern about how long they're going to live without the consideration of, of what those years are actually like and what is your day to day life like? Right. So like if you think about it from a from a male perspective, something like preserving sexual function is something that can be very important to quality of life, where, you know, if, if a man gets to 55, 60 and starts to lose sex drive, ability to to gain and maintain erectile function, those sorts of things. 
if you could extend that for 20 years and let's assume you have a meaningful relationship where something like this is actually going to to bring you some amount of satisfaction and connection with your significant other. If you can extend that function for 20 years, would it even matter if your lifespan was shortened by three to four years? If the alternative is just that part of your life is over, your energy levels are low, you're wasting away and losing muscle mass every single year. And it's not like, and I'm not suggesting that you don't need to consider the downside because obviously you do, especially when, uh, if it's an interest can contribute to to onset or or rapid degradation by disease but many women and men but you know right now talking about women who are going through menopause like their life is awful as far as what those symptoms do to their day-to-day life the amount of pain discomfort just the dysregulation of their health on a day on a day-to-day basis like we, we get so i guess what i'm saying is we get so concerned about the risk and we get like blinders on just thinking about risk without considering what, what the potential upside could be and what, what taking that <laughs> risk actually gives back to us. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, and and it's, you kind of see a generational thing. So like the baby boomers pretty much lost out on a, a, most of the opportunity for people who would be willing to prescribe estrogen replacement therapy. And, and their generation was also very much like, well, you know, it's just something that you got to go through and you got to tough it out. And that's, that's it. But I, I find that, you know, the, the generations following that Gen Xers and, you know, millennials, as we're getting closer to that age group are much more willing to have a conversation about, you know, quality of life is actually really important. And I'd rather have something that that might make a big difference there. And I don't like to push medications on people, but there are a short list of things that actually can make a drastic difference for somebody's day-to-day quality of life. And hormone replacement therapy is one of those things. So it's it's definitely worth having that conversation. There are also non-hormonal treatments for vasomotor symptoms of, of perimenopause. Um, those are mostly in the, you know, antidepressant class or a medication called gabapentin, for example. Um, but these are like, you know, starting an antidepressant is, is no small thing either. There's a long list of potential side effects. Gabapentin is another medication, which is sedating, uh, and has side effects of its own. So like this, in terms of the side effect profile, the hormones are actually preferred, and more effective. So that should absolutely be the first line possibility, unless somebody has absolute contraindications to taking the treatment. So for sure, I mean, I, I hope that providers are are more willing to have the conversation. And it, it it's unfortunately, I think primary care kind of has to take the brunt of, of most of this because, um, you know, sp- specialists in my position typically are not having that conversation. And what I do see a lot of the time is that it's kind of shunted to obstetrics and gynecology. And so they must have a long uh, waiting list of, of women who are trying to get in to see a gynecologist to get hormone replacement therapy, which honestly can easily be done in primary care with you know appropriate testing and very little monitoring afterwards. Well, that, that, 
brings up a a bit of the issue here is that there is the issue with primary care medicine is there's so much variation between what one physician knows. Like it, it doesn't, the education is not standardized outside of what's already existing in school. Right. So <laughs> the school, the, the, the school education is so far behind that the treatment you get is not going to depend on the problem you have. The treatment you get is going to depend on what your physician does or does not know. And I know yeah. many, I know many, many primary care physicians, and they're not great at staying up to date. It's like school's over. Th that part of my life is done. Now I'm a practicing physician. I, I, I don't think it's a case that they all think that they know everything there is to know, but it's like, I I'm not going back to learning. Now well, I'm doing. It's impossible to know everything. <clears throat> and yeah. like, I'm in my ninth year of practice after doing five years of postgraduate medical education uh, after four years of medical school. And, you know, I, I feel like I'm now at a point where I've, I'm, I'm kind of hitting my stride. Like I, I feel like I'm really good at the things that I like to pay attention to. And my blind spots are there, but they're much less than they were before. Family medicine, and they've, I, I know you obviously have thoughts on this because you're married to a family doctor. Um, I mean, they, they just had a vote uh, about extending uh, uh, family medicine residency to three years from two years, and they voted it down. Uh, to me, that seems kind of crazy because there is just so much to know and the breadth of medical knowledge and potential treatments and everything is expanding year over year that spending an extra year in training to be able to go out and start practice and see literally anything that can walk in the door in primary care like an extra year seems like it's probably a good idea i i know what they're the reason they voted it down is because it's already hard enough to get people attracted to match into uh, primary care for, for residency positions, because we have a huge shortage of primary care. It's hard. You're really busy. Um, and then doing a three-year program probably might scare even more people away and we would have an, an even greater shortage. So I, like, I get that aspect of it, but at the same time, I mean, those first five years of family medicine practice, if you're a, a true general practitioner must be insanely difficult. You know how you could solve that problem right away? how <laughs> make make primary care medicine an entry level university program that is four or five years followed by an extended uh fellowship residency where there's more on the job training because i don't think having number one uh like a bachelor of science I don't think that's going to make a better physician than someone who has a bachelor of arts. I don't think even most of what you learn is applicable. And most physicians, a bachelor of anything is not enough. They end up having to go do a master's in something and like yeah. drag on this school. It's like, if you want primary care physicians, find bright, determined young people who want to start in medicine right off the beginning and why do you have to delay their medical education? Like, of course, you want someone to have experience and maturity before they become a family physician. 
and are operating their own practice. But there's so much more opportunity to have them well educated by the time they step into that position. Like you could give someone eight years of medical education if they know it's something that they want to do and have them skip over all of the other ridiculous post-secondary education that really contributes little to to what they would to what they would be as an actual practicing physician and that that's a model they they have that model in in the uk um and and ireland so you can go into medical school right out of high school and it's a six-year program if you take that route yeah so interesting i'm sure i'm sure no matter what no matter what profession you're looking at especially like professional professions like law medicine engineering you're going to have people who are more educated you're going to have people who are less educated you're going to have people who are more ambitious and and self-determined to continue their education but i find when it comes to something like primary care medicine it's a big problem that there's there's literally no standardization of the treatment someone or i shouldn't say there's none obviously there's 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 guidelines there's some criteria yeah. that needs to be followed. But if you think about something very specific, like hormone replacement therapy, the two people with the same problem who walk into two different physicians offices are going to get two completely different experiences. Total, and even totally if, different and answers. Even, yeah. And, and our, and our system is not, is not set up to, to get a second opinion. Right. So yeah, that's like it, super common in the U S because it's privatized, but in Canada, it's like not a chance. You're not getting a second opinion yeah, or but, they'll just refer you to a specialist and then you'll wait six months to a year get in to see them and then maybe you'll get your answer. Maybe you won't. And it depends if you click with that person even. Yeah. A person could walk into one physician's office and just say, uh, this is, you know, this is how I feel. They send them for some blood work. They say, well, this is what's come back. Uh, I, I think you should try hormone replacement therapy. I think you're a good candidate and I think it can be very helpful. Another person could walk into their doctor's office, go through the same testing, and they can take their own initiative and say, this is what I want. I want to try hormone replacement therapy. And they can have a physician to say, no, there's no way I'm prescribing that to you. And, even, I, and if I, what, even if it's what you want. And I have literally seen both of those scenarios and other scenarios in my office when people see me and they're frustrated because they wanted something, they had done their homework on it, and they were just met with a brick wall. Yeah. What do you suggest to, to, to both men and women in, in that case? Like if they have a family physician who's <laughs> resistant to the idea of, of, of them trying some sort of hormone replacement therapy, like what, is there anything that they can say or do in that scenario? Um, I mean, if, if you don't have a provider who's willing to, to prescribe the treatment, then your, your only recourse is to say, okay, can you please refer me to somebody who, who, would be reasonable or even have the name of somebody like, can you refer me to this uh, specialist, whether this internist, this gynecologist, this other person, you know, women's health specialist, um, then, and I can have a conversation with them. I think most physicians would be willing to do that. It would be a real ego pump to say, absolutely not. I'm not even going to refer you to somebody like that's, that's a bit nuts. And if that's the case, then I would probably look elsewhere for a primary care provider. Um, but that being said, it's really, really difficult. Uh, I'm just speaking to the Ontario system now to find a primary care provider if you don't have one. Uh, so if a, if you don't have one, like you, you basically just have to call offices randomly and see if they're accepting new patients, or you can go on healthcare connect 
through the ministry and they'll be like, oh yeah, we'll put your name on a list. Well, you won't hear from them for two years. Uh, and if, if they send you to somebody at all, and in the meantime, they'll just tell you to call random offices and see if they're accepting new patients. If you have a family doctor and you don't have a good relationship with them and you want to change, and that happens, not everybody gets along, um, good luck. <laughs> so like it, you, you don't want to sever ties until you know you have potentially something else in hand because access to the system is really challenging because your only other options then are basically you got to go to urgent care. You got to go to a walk-in clinic for just random matters that come up that need attention, but they're definitely not going to talk to you about preventative health things and, you know, proactive stuff that's going to be directed at quality of life and uh, cardiometabolic health, et cetera. So yeah, anyway, we've gone far enough afield. I think just bringing it back when it comes to hormone replacement therapy, uh, the message I want to get out there is this is a totally viable therapy. It's great for a lot of people. And please raise the topic with your with your provider. And you, you, I mean, you'll find out what their what their stance is on it. Um, but certainly, it's it's not something that women have to suffer through just because it's a biologically normal thing of aging. So on, on that topic, how do you decide whether a person, you know, let's say someone comes in, they are uh, deficient or absent in specific hormones that would, that would be part of this problem. They're having uh, considerate negative side effects that, uh, that, you know, require some sort of intervention to improve the quality of life. From that point, how do you determine if someone is a candidate for hormone replacement therapy versus some other form of potential therapy? So like, like anything in medicine, there's a differential diagnosis for the symptoms that may be in keeping with, uh, with peri perimenopause. So when you're having night sweats and hot flashes, then we always think about other things, you know, is there a different hormonal thing going on? There are certain conditions where you have higher adrenaline, higher cortisol. Um, there are, you know, some hidden cancer syndromes that can cause flushing and um, among other symptoms usually would be associated with shortness of breath, diarrhea as well, weight loss. Uh, it's typically not weight loss. That's people's concern when they're going through menopause. So we just have to look at the, the broad symptoms, uh, thyroid issues, hyperthyroidism could also cause, you know, flushes and, and night sweats. So these are all the things that we want to, we want to test. So we include those on, on a lab panel. We rule that stuff out by history and by testing. And if we rule all those things out and somebody's in the right age range that, you know, 45 plus, um, then we talk about it and then we go through their medical history and say, do you have any contraindications? If not, then yeah, this is an option. So what do you think? Here's the potential risks. Here's what we know. Here's what the treatment is. You know, you've got oral estrogen options. There's a transdermal patch. Uh, there's creams. There's uh, uh, intravaginal uh, treatment options. Like there, there's lots of different ways of going about it. And so you just have that conversation and see uh, what somebody's willing to do if they, if they want to try it. And it's, I mean, it's not something that you have to be committed to forever. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Uh, if it does work, then great. Let's monitor and move forward. Is there any natural interventions that you've ever come across that you've found there's, there's any meaningful effect in these circumstances? 
Uh, no, I I don't think so. And certainly in our in, in the guidelines, there's there's no like supplements or uh, specific uh, herbal or or natural uh, products that I think are specifically indicated for perimenopausal symptoms. Okay. Yeah. So when talking more about uh, menopause, uh, whether you know a woman is 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 ramping up, going through it, or out on the other side of it when thinking about what this does to a woman's body because there's there's the one part which is like the the immediate discomforts of like disruptive sleep hot flashes these sorts of things but women's bodies also don't work the same as they once did um typically uh weight gain uh inability to lose weight along with issues with energy levels, these are all things that come along as well. So if, if a woman is trying to maintain, let's say like a, a certain superficial figure, right? And I don't mean superficial in a negative way. It's just the people yeah. like to be a certain weight, a certain size, a certain body composition. And there's, there's certainly nothing wrong with that. But that becomes a challenge to maintain when women are going through this. So can you talk a little bit about what those symptoms are like and the specific challenges that, that women face in, in like fitness related spectrum? Sure. Well, like there's a myth that when people go through menopause, they're going to gain 10 to 15 pounds, usually around the middle. And that's, that's it. That's just part of the process. Um, that's, that does not have to be the case. And there's no good physiologic reason why that has to be the case. So when women are premenopausal, when they gain weight, they typically gain around the hips and, and thighs primarily. Before, Post sorry, be before we go any further, can you explain what premenopausal is? Oh, pre like, what does so that mean? Premenopausal, it's, it's say a woman, a woman under age 45. So it has nothing to do with specific symptoms or changes. It no, just, just means you're not there yet. Yeah, just somebody who's having regular cycles and you know every everything is is status quo. They're not having any of these symptoms yet or any irregularities in their cycle. Okay, so it's not like pre-diabetic. Yeah, as we would as we would say in uh, in our medical notes, woman of childbearing age. Uh, <laughs> Isn't that nice? Um, controversial these days. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, so after, after menopause, it seems like the distribution of weight gain, if someone gains weight is more so in the visceral fat region, such as around the abdomen. And so this probably again is an estrogen effect. So when you lose estrogen, you may be more likely to gain visceral fats than subcutaneous fat in the typical, uh, distribution that you would before menopause. So we just have to be aware of that. And it's it's going to change probably your metabolic rate to some extent. And so, yeah, there's got to be some adaptations to what you're doing for physical activity and exercise, what you're doing from a nutritional standpoint, what you're doing in terms of alcohol consumption, what you're doing in terms of sleep hygiene and quality, which is one of the most important reasons for, for the hormone replacement. Um, so we need to pay attention to all of those lifestyle factors, but I wouldn't say in the immediate perimenopausal time period, there's like a specific change in the type of fitness that you need to go about. I think you're, 
women are still fully capable of doing absolutely anything that they could have done before, depending on what their baseline was. Like I, I, I wouldn't think that um, you need to start focusing on core exercises, for example, or you need to, you know, do more cardio in order to maintain your weight. The fat distribution is probably going to be more related to your diet and but just general principles of good, healthy, whole food diets without sugar, refined carbohydrates and excess alcohol and so on are, you know, all those rules apply. So because those are the things that are going to promote visceral fat, and they just might be better at promoting visceral fat after menopause. Well, that's what I was going to say, because two specific things I, I think of here is uh, number one, regardless of, of changes in, in hormone production, uh, as women age, I would think something like resistance training would become more important than perhaps it was, uh, when a woman was younger, uh, it's same is true, true for men as well, but women have to be more concerned about things like osteoporosis and Resistance yeah. training and significant resistance training can be one of your your best tools to to push back against something like osteoporosis. But then also, uh, it does seem like there's some sort of physiologic effect where consumption of carbohydrates, particularly sugars and simple sugars, uh, does become more problematic as women age uh, and go through these hormonal changes. I, I assume because of the, as you're going through this process, you're more likely to become insulin resistant. And therefore you're just that those types of foods inside your diet become less forgiving and more consequential. So perhaps there, there are specific changes that, that should be made when women go through that as far as diet and exercise that would be different than what they would do when they were 30, 35 years old. Well, I mean, if, if you're eating clean before, keep eating clean. If you weren't, it's going to be more important to try to eliminate those things that are going to promote the insulin resistance and visceral fat deposition than it was before. And then like just for anybody, men and women, as you age, especially that 50 mark seems to be a really important threshold it's much more difficult to gain and maintain lean body mass after age 50 for both sexes. So people probably need to up the amount of protein that they were eating before in order to actually just maintain the same level of muscle mass. And then you're absolutely right. Resistance training is, is very important as we age to continue to be a part of your fitness routine, but it always was all through your twenties, thirties and forties as well. It's just that it might have a bit of a different purpose now. So maintaining that lean body mass requires resistance training and adequate protein, and that will help you remain insulin sensitive. And it will also help to in, increase bone mineral density and maintain bone density as you age. And so that's you know, probably a reasonable segue into the topic of osteoporosis. Um, so, I mean, osteoporosis is just the, the process of losing bone mineral density as you age. Uh, it's more in the later decades that it seems to be a problem, particularly like 60, 70 plus for sure is higher risk. And the reason this is a problem is when you lose bone density, particularly in your spine, 
and in your in the in your femurs you're at a very high risk of having fractures so vertebral fractures is what gives people that you know hunched over kyphotic look as they age where they lose height and you know a slip and fall on an osteoporotic hip um, can create a fracture there and the morbidity and mortality after a hip fracture is really significant uh, like 50 percent in the two years after an incident so we really want to set people up for success so that they never get an osteoporotic fracture and so not only resistance training is important as people age, but balance and functional fitness training is also crucial. And so balance training being, you know, we want to prevent falls because it's the fall and the trauma that results in the fracture. These aren't just necessarily spontaneous fractures. So, you know, being able to get on the ground and get back up is really important. Being able to move and balance yourself on one foot is really important. Um, so that's you know the, that's where the functional fitness space can be really important. Yeah, I just wanted to say that I don't think balance training is a thing. Um, <laughs> I I think it's about strength and mobility and the combination of those two things. Being you don't do like one one legged squats on a Bosu <laughs> ball. Well, I think even like standing on one foot, I don't think helps someone to be able to be balanced on one foot, especially as an adult. And when we're talking about the aging population, I think the reason why something like balance becomes an issue is it's really instability. It's you're weak and you're mm -hmm. especially weak through deeper and deeper ranges of motion that, that you're not capable of going through. So the combination of those two things acts like a balance problem. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that like working on balance specifically is probably going to be less fruitful than just getting a little bit stronger Oh sure, um, yeah. and working and working through ranges of motion with a little bit of resistance is probably going to be, uh, is going to be more helpful. I had a question about, uh, the mortality rate post post fall, uh, and post break for, for the aging population. Is that a matter of, the actual trauma from the fall or is that because at that age and most people are so deconditioned that the the just being debilitated from a break like that is just almost self-defeating at that age where you just stop doing everything and then your mobility is completely limited and then the next step is just degradation it's both um so we when i do inpatient medicine consults for surgical services we see a lot of the hip fracture patients there's a lot of morbidity that happens in the hours to days after a fracture. So you can imagine you break your femur, it's the largest bone in your body. And now you have exposed bone marrow in your system. That is an extremely pro-inflammatory state that puts you at an increased risk for having cardiovascular outcomes like heart attack, stroke, and also an increased risk of having like acute blood clots. So either a DVT or, or a PE pulmonary embolism. Uh, and then you get all the downstream problems from that. So we, we get a lot of people who decompensate pretty hard after, after a hip fracture. So getting it fixed is, is important. They literally just kind of go in and slap a rod on it and throw some screws in and there you go. It's a, you know, it's a pretty crude uh, thing, but getting closing up that bone marrow exposure is really, really important physiologically. Afterwards, though, 
we expect anybody who has a, a hip fracture, whatever their level of mobility was pre-fracture is going to be one level less at the best after the fracture. So if they were using a walker before, now it's likely that they're going to be wheelchair bound for the rest of their life. Uh, or if they were, you know, weren't using any gate aids, then they're quite likely leaving with uh, with a walker. So that creates physical dependence, which means less activity, which means you, you know, have less access to the world because it's more challenging to get around. You're dependent on other people for things. And we know that dependence and frailty is highly associated with increased mortality. And probably increases the the risk mm -hmm. of falls in the future too. Yeah. So how do you, how do you prevent osteoporosis and fractures? Well, it's, you know, staying, staying fit, uh, promoting lean body mass uh, with the exercises that we, we talked about from a dietary standpoint. I mean, yeah, you want to get an adequate amount of calcium in your diet because you need calcium for bone turnover and bone production. Um, so, you know, there's obviously calcium rich foods. Um, dairy is probably the best example, but there's other uh, animal products and non-animal based uh, foods that are high in calcium shooting for thousand to 1200 milligrams a day seems to be the target. Um, supplementing calcium actually doesn't have very good evidence and actually might be evidence of potential increased risk of cardiovascular disease. Uh, but we do want to supplement vitamin D. Uh, so most of the guidelines will say, uh, at least 800 units a day. I prefer just 2000, uh, pretty much for everybody. Uh, as a as a preventative measure and to keep an adequate amount of vitamin D on board. Uh, in terms of <clears throat> getting you know assessed for osteoporosis, so if you have a family history of osteoporosis, if you've had a fracture yourself, if you uh, consume a lot of alcohol, if you're a smoker, uh, if your BMI is actually low, like lower than 20, these are all high risk features for potential osteoporosis. So if you are over 50 and you have any of those risk factors, you should absolutely talk to your family doctor and get a bone mineral density scan and see where you're at. Um, if you're over 60, then I mean, probably pretty much anybody could have a bone mineral density scan and kind of see what their, their status is. And then if it's low, then you would have the conversation about potential, uh, drug therapy to prevent fractures yeah there's a bit of a there's a bit of a paradox as we talk about all of this because we're saying as you know as women age and they they go through these different phases it becomes more important to eat well it becomes more important <laughs> to exercise you yeah. have to be more you have to be more diligent in these places because you know the consequence of not doing these things is is less less forgiving yeah but the problem is that you know we've said this in the past if someone's if someone's listening to this podcast chances are they're they're significantly further ahead than the average person and, and more interested in their health and their health and already taking action but people who don't fall into that group typically your habits and behaviors don't improve over time as you get later in age. So we're saying now it's becoming more important to eat well. It's becoming more important to exercise. You have to be much more diligent in these places, but you've spent the last 60 years of your life moving in the opposite direction of, of forming these habits. How do you 
Like, how do you manage that as a physician, knowing that the, the vast majority of people you meet, they, they, could, they can make some changes for sure. Definitely. Uh, but they're, they've probably haven't spent their life building up their, their, their discipline to, to make these sorts of interventions. Yeah, you want to have a good baseline going into your you know, post 50 <laughs> decades. Um, it's kind of like saying, you know, when's the best time to invest in the stock market? Well, 30 years ago. Uh, but the second best time is now. So it's it's always now. And if you haven't been doing these things, then you can always start paying attention because we know that even, even people 80 plus who start a resistance training program are able to increase strength and increase body mass and increase uh, you know range of motion and all those things that are associated with a lower risk of falls. So it's it's never too late. Um, but for sure, you know, the the broader PSA here is you just be as fit and as healthy as you can be at every point of your life because that will increase your baseline. And that means that your functional your function once it starts to decline, which it will for everybody will, you know, your function as an 80 year old can still be better than the average function of a 40 year old today. So that is absolutely possible. Yeah, and getting easier and easier to do, unfortunately. Um, so it, assuming that that the people are listening who, who don't come by, you know, exercise nutrition, naturally, it's, it's, it's daunting to them. In your mind, what are like the two to three big levers for like, here's just a few simple things that you can do that, that are, are accessible and, and most people can do that you're going to get a big return on. For specific exercises, you mean? Yeah. Like in, in diet, exercise, lifestyle, oh. just think like low barrier to entry, easy to adapt to not like there's no, or limited fear involved in, in, in actually taking these steps, what are some things you can think of? Yeah. Eliminate sugar, eliminate refined carbohydrates or reduce them as much as you can and increase your protein consumption. And that will get you a long way there from the, the nutrition standpoint. Can you be more specific when you say, uh, increase protein consumption, like to the average person, what does yeah. that actually look like? Yeah, sure. So like for specific numbers, a, a, a reasonable number to shoot for is like 40 grams of protein three times a day. And what does that look like? So that'll give you 120 grams total per day. That'll fit the needs for most people. What does that look like? So a chicken breast has about 30 grams of protein. Uh, an egg has six grams of protein. Um, you know, it's, it's it sounds like a lot, but you can also supplement um, so, you know, for breakfast, if you have a couple of eggs and you have some Greek yogurt and maybe toast and peanut butter, it's pretty easy actually to get, you know, 40 grams of protein. And then people will say, well, I don't feel like eating in the morning. And that's a whole different conversation, but <laughs> it is what it is. Um, and then, you know, you want to have a protein forward approach for, for lunch. So have a, a good quality animal-based protein or choose plant sources that are the highest, like your, your legumes and, and soy products. And, you know, that should be roughly a quarter of your plate. Half your plate should be 
fresh vegetables and fruits and the other half could be, you know, whole grains. And if so, if you kind of follow that pattern, then you're going to get an ample amount of, uh, of protein throughout the day. And again, supplementing is, is totally fine as well, as long as you have a, like a good quality, uh, whey protein and you're not adding it into a smoothie with a whole pile of sugar, fruit juice or something like that. Um, so that's the, the nutrition side. I mean, quitting smoking, if you're a smoker, I know it's a battle, but there are resources that can help. That's hugely important um, and definitely affects your bone density, not to mention cancer risk and heart disease risk. Uh, and then reducing the amount of alcohol to a reasonable level, you know, three to six drinks a week is probably fine. No increased risk of uh, for bone density issues um, or, you know, I the ideal amount would be zero if you're able to do that and you're happy with that. That's great. Um, and then in, in terms of specific exercises, so for resistance training, you really like body weight is good, but I think when it comes to really promoting bone density in your spine and, and your femurs, you really do need to load the system. So you need to have some form of resistance like bands or some sort of free weights. And so if you're totally novice, then you like, you need to go and have an assessment done, see a personal trainer. Uh, most of the the big box gyms will have somebody who can at least do an assessment for you. Uh, or if you uh, can find somebody who specializes in, you know, aging adults, then even better because they'll know specifically what to look for and what to advise. Uh, what I tell people with exercise when it comes to uh, when it comes to the aging population or people who are just deconditioned, uh, it's like body weight is usually okay when you're thinking about pushing exercises. Like if you think about like squatting is yeah. essentially a pushing exercise, right? So like for, for people who are fairly deconditioned, doing a push-up is probably not even realistic. You're going to have to do some sort of like push-up alternative. Yeah. If you're putting weight over your head, it's probably going to be very, very lightweight that you're putting overhead. And for most people, body weight squatting is enough to start. And then, you know, getting to single leg variations like lunging and things like that, assuming you have stability that you can do that safely that's where you can go from there but there's a lot to be gained from adding resistance to pulling uh, because you it's typically an easier movement for people to do uh usually or not usually all the time it's 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 larger muscle groups so mm -hmm. whether you're pulling with your arms or picking something up off the floor like there's an opportunity there to have much more resistance that's going to lend itself to more resilience in the way that we're talking about with less risk as well because like those pushing exercises is where people usually get into a lot of overuse issues um perhaps more more risky movements especially when it comes to like squatting with something on your back or holding something that you would have to ditch if, if you found yourself in a precarious situation but picking something up off the floor or pulling something with your arms is a pretty easy mechanic for people to do that can be loaded fairly safely where when we're talking about uh, increasing bone mineral density staving off osteoporosis and, and wanting to have some added resistance there it's usually easier and safer to do pulling than pushing for sure and and easily accomplished with just bands right like bent over Definitely. upright rows or or some sort of pull down you know, over a door or whatever is you know relatively easy to do with minimal equipment yeah very underrated and and probably ideal for a lot of people just because of the nature of the bands it's it's that con it's constant resistance too mm -hmm. like you have you have constant tension and constant resistance that's very uh low risk and low consequence so for a lot of people having 
you know, double X small, X small, and a small band, three of them, you could get all those three bands for less than 30 bucks from a supplier. Uh, and if you're determined to show up every day and do something, that's probably all that you need for your daily exercise routine. Right. Uh, okay. Last thing I want to cover is uh, breast cancer. So obviously, uh, hugely, hugely important. The numbers are, are kind of startling. So the uh, the risk of, of breast cancer in a woman's lifetime is one in eight. Uh, so, you know, I just think of Think of all the women who you know in, in your life and your family and your friends, and you know one in eight will will be affected by breast cancer. So the 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 prevalence is is really significant, which is why screening is so important. Um, and screening has has great evidence. So we know that there is a mortality benefit to screening um, because you you catch cancers earlier, and if the earlier you catch a cancer, the more treatment options you have, and the more likely you are to have curative treatment options. Uh, so right now, the in the, the Ontario Breast Cancer Screening Program uh, is a self-referral program for between the ages of 50 and 75. Uh, if you have higher risk because you have had like family members, first degree relatives who've had breast cancer, um, then you should probably start being screened by age 40 or even younger if it's a genetic uh, type of cancer. And that's, that's known like BRCA one and, and two mutations that give a significantly increased risk of breast and ovarian cancer. Um, so anyway, if, if you have breast cancer in your family, then, and you're between 40 and 50, talk to your primary care provider, get referred to the screening program, start as soon as possible. Um, and then if you're between 50 and 75, doesn't matter if you have a family doctor or not, you can self-refer and uh, get into one of the breast screening programs and, and start. So you should absolutely do that. Um, and then next year, actually, based on evidence, the, the age range is going to broaden for self-referral. So we'll actually go down to age 40. So anybody starting, I think it's the fall of 2024. Um, so if you're you know in your early forties, and you want to have a mammogram and start the screening process, you can self-refer at that point. So keep keep an eye out for that for, for next year. Is there not some amount of controversy with things like uh, prostate-specific antigen screening and, and mammograms? Uh, well, the controversy, I think there's more controversy around PSAs for, for prostate cancer screening for men. So that's typically not recommended in, in the guidelines. Um, different story for a different time when we do a men's health edition. Okay. So just like, take it easy. <laughs> Sorry. Um, man, so mammograms, the, the risk in any screening protocol is the risk of false positives. So uh, you see something in the mammogram. So a mammogram is just, it's an x-ray of a, of a squished breast and you're looking for basically calcifications. So anything with calcium in it shows up as white on the x-ray. So you're looking for signs of that or like dense tissue that could be a group of um, of malignant cells that are all together. So if you have a benign lesion, that could show up as something that needs a callback. Uh, for women who have dense breast tissue, then it's more likely to have false positives as well. And of course, if, if you get called back because they saw something on your mammogram, that's really distressing. Uh, even though the vast majority of callbacks turn out to be benign. And so what happens then is typically you're called back for an ultrasound and potentially an ultrasound guided biopsy of whatever it is that they saw. 
uh, and then sometimes an MRI uh, of the breast as well, which will give you much more detailed imaging. So, you know, we take those safety confirmatory steps, but for sure it's, it can put you through some psychological distress because it's really scary to have, you know, the thought that you might have breast cancer. Now I'm going for this biopsy. Now I'm going to wait for that pathology report. And that's really worrisome. So yeah, it's not, it's not without its real world impact. And if that all turns out to be just, you know, a benign thing, you're like, was that really worth it? Well, it turns out on a population basis, it probably is worth it. Um, you know, my, my mom, uh, is, is a great example of breast cancer screening, uh, gone properly. Uh, she had a, a relatively early stage cancer picked up, uh, and she was, oh geez, probably around 50 and yeah, she went on to have the biopsy done, turned out it was malignant and went on to, uh, to have a mastectomy. So, you know, she was cured and she, she's alive today because it was found because it was completely asymptomatic. It's not something that you're going to find on a breast self-examination or even with a provider's examination. Um, so it's on, on a population basis, it is, um, it is the best way to go in my opinion. I'm surprised these are not completely outsourced by artificial intelligence at this point. Hmm. Even the entire radiology department, you would think that technology <laughs> could do that job far better than the human eye could at this point. Yeah, and we I also think... all know that radiologists get paid too much and do too little. Yeah, so I have, I have some good... Uh friend interventional radiologists who I think their jobs are, are super safe because they do like crazy crazy things that are unbelievable that they can do like feeding wires into crazy places in people's bodies to you know haul out clots when they have a stroke or put in coils and do all kinds of stuff it's amazing um but just for reading like plain film x-rays yeah probably AI could do most of that. And I'm, I'm guessing that's a hot area of research. And, you know, from the political standpoint, it'll be, okay, how do you deploy the technology to increase the number of scans that you can read to make even more money? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Anyway, I feel like we've droned on long enough, but those are the, the major points that we wanted to, uh, to hit. We solved it. We solved women's health. <laughs> We'll see. You might want to cut that last part out. <laughs> Never. All right. Till next time. The content provided on this podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute the providing of medical advice and is not intended to be a substitute for independent professional medical judgment advice, diagnosis, or treatment. I mean, clearly not when I'm speaking. I'm not a doctor, but that goes for the real doctor, Dr. Appleton as well. You should always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions or concerns you may have regarding your health. You should never disregard or delay seeking medical advice relating to treatment or standard of care because of information contained in or transmitted Huh? Transmitted? Yes, information contained in or transmitted in this podcast. <laughs>